This is Dana Thomas, and you're listening to The Green Dream, a podcast about how to green up your life by Wondercast Studio. Climate change is bearing down on us like a mighty hurricane. And it's scary as hell, but it doesn't have to be. I'm Dana Thomas, a leading voice in the sustainable fashion movement. On The Green Dream, I welcome global experts, creators, and change makers from politics, business, and the arts for dynamic conversations on how you can green up your life. The Green Dream is the podcast of hope. This episode is sponsored by Another Tomorrow, a women's fashion brand that redefines luxury with a commitment to ethics, sustainability, and transparency from farm to fabric to atelier. Find Another Tomorrow on its website, anothertomorrow.co, at its flagship boutique, 384 Bleecker Street in New York City, and at select stores. Today on The Green Dream, I have two guests. First, Rocky Shaw, Chief Executive of The Circle, an NGO founded by British singer-songwriter Annie Lennox, which fights for a fairer world for women and girls. My second guest is Kalpona Ektar, the leading garment factory activist in Bangladesh and an ambassador to The Circle. I first met Kalpona exactly four years ago this week in Savar, a major clothing manufacturing center in Bangladesh. It was the fifth anniversary of the Rana Plaza garment factory collapse in Savar, a horrific tragedy that injured 2,500 garment workers and killed more than 1,100. I was at the former factory site, now an empty lot, to speak to survivors of the collapse for an article I was writing for the New York Times and for my book, Fashionopolis. Calpona was there to lead a protest march calling for improved worker rights, pay, and safety regulations. Calpona's story is as empowering as they come. She was sent by her family to work in the garment factories when she was a young child. Her father was ill, and they needed her income to make ends meet. By the time she was a teen, she was fed up with the horrible treatment she had endured by factory owners and brands, and moved into activism. Her powerful story will change the way you think about clothes, shopping, everything, really. Before we get to Rocky and Calpona, however, I'm excited to share with you something new at The Green Dream. Following our discussion about worker rights, the respected literary critic Hermione Hobie joins us to review Rebecca Solnit's book, Orwell's Roses. Hermione, a Brit living in Boulder, Colorado, is herself an acclaimed writer. Last year, Riverhead Books published her first novel, Virtue, a powerful story about youth, desire, and moral conflict. The New York Times called Virtue intense and addictive. And Interview Magazine said that Hobie might have just written the defining New York City novel of our fraught, socially anxious, and politically tumultuous times. Hermione is only the first in a series of regular cultural contributors to The Green Dream. We have more in store for you in the coming weeks. We're honored to have her on the Green Dream team. But first, let's get back to Rocky and Calpona, who I am pleased to have as guests during the week that counts both the anniversary of Rana Plaza and Earth Day. During a Pulitzer Center conference I attended online last month, one of the speakers said that in the media today, every story is a climate story, and every climate story is a labor story. I think our conversation today confirms that statement. 
When we recorded, it was morning for Rocky at the Circle's headquarters in London, and afternoon for Kalpona in Dhaka, the capital of Bangladesh, where she was observing Ramadan. The noise of the city's epic traffic can be clearly heard down the line. Okay, is the window open? No, window is not open. Okay. But, you know, my office is next to the main street. You know, I remember when we were there and I was talking to you and there would be that man whose job it was to beat the side of the buses to tell them they could go with the buses <laughs> full. And I thought, that's really effective, but that poor bus yeah. is so beat up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and the noise, the noise, the noise of him whacking yeah, the bus. Yeah. Wow, what a scene. Yeah, that is, you know, famous for a few things. One is noise, then pollution, and then people. And clothes, and clothes, which brings us to our subject. Bangladesh is known for clothes. It's the second largest garment producer in the world after China. And that's saying a lot since it's a much smaller country than China. That's true. So you started working in the factories when you were 12 years old, didn't you? What was that like? What was your job in the factory? And what was your everyday life like in the factory? Yeah, it is true that when I started working, I was just 12. And, you know, definitely it is not my choice to be uh, a factory worker. It was my father who was the primary owner in the family and he got ill. So my mom, she first started working in a factory, but she couldn't continue as we had baby sister at home. So mom had to take care of the infant. And she got sick too. So she couldn't work more than six months and she quit and she stayed home. Then it was me in the family who was the older. Mom talked to me and the day I went to school and came back and mom says, it is time. We need to decide. So we decided. And following morning, I went to the factory with a few adults who would be living near to our home. And they will be already working in that factory. So they say they already has been requested their supervisor for a person to get hired as a helper. And supervisor agreed. So they said I should go with them. And following morning, I went with them. It's a cultural shock. I had to wait at like two hours outside of the building before I go inside. And when I went inside, it was the office room who asked me if I know the counting in English. And I said, yes, I know that. And then they took me to the production floor. As I said, it is a cultural shock. I haven't seen that many people together except the annual day in our school where all parents would become. And then I never heard that the adults scream to the adults or to other people with that bad language, like slangs. So it was verbal abuses that first thing came into my ear when I was in the factory. So noise and then the verbal abuses. So then I heard that my position is a helper. I'd be helping the operator. But the first job I got, it is cutting the loop that is using in the pen. That was my first job. And it wasn't easy to do. The first day I worked till... 10.30 or 11 p.m. till the night, and whole time I stood up on my feet. So in general, it was an easy life for a 12-year, and especially when I was able to see my school playground from the rooftop of my factory where I would be working. And there were many other children would be working. 
So this was my first factory. And when I switched to second for 50 taka rice, the situation was same. The verbal, physical abuses, sometimes sexual abuses was common. And the poverty wages was common. I would be paying like $6 a month working over 400 hours in 30 days. I stood up in my feet for whatever longer shift I work. And the supervisor will be throwing the merchandise in our faces if I would do any minor mistake. There was many children working. The younger one I can remember, he was seven years old. So life was hard for all of us. After me working in the factory, I think year one or two, my 10-year-old brother also joined with me. And we two were the breadwinner for family and a little amount for my father medical. So that was life. How much were you earning at the time? What were you paid? It was $6 a month if I can convert taka to dollar. Wages was 240 taka and then one taka for one hour overtime. Sorry, 50 cents, like 50 paisa in our currency was for overtime hour. So if I would do 300 hours overtime, I will get like 150 taka. So altogether, it is not more than $6 that I would be making in those days. And what were you sewing? What were the clothes that you were making? The very first factory where I joined, that factory would be making pants and shirt. But when I switched to other factory, it is more like knitting stuff. They would be making t-shirt, polo shirt, sweatshirts, cargo pants, all other stuff they would be making. And I can remember the brands in that time. It was Shears and Walmart whom I would be producing for in that factory. And you worked there until you were what age? And what happened? Why did you have to leave the factory? I was working, you know, without knowing the law and rights. I knew those factory owners was rich people. They have a factory and they're kind enough to give us a job. I haven't had any idea whether I'm getting the right wages or whether I'm working in a right shifting hour. Well, of course not. You were 13, 14 years old, right? Yeah. I mean, nobody even the factory told me how long should be my working hour. It was, you know, after a few years, uh, during the Eid month, the factory management said they will be pay us less for overtime, which we disagreed. And I disagreed because it is during Eid and I had a plan with money because I wanted to buy a new clothes for my brother and sisters. So I don't want to lose that money. And we went for a strike without knowing what is the strike is, like stop the work. So it was 1,800 worker, and we were 92, 93 front striker who called a strike. And 92 was men, and I was the only young female worker who joined with them because I really needed that money. So after back and forth, we won the strike with the condition that management still would pay us less. And I was fine with that because I didn't know how much I was supposed to get. Then the factory management started firing the striker. So in a first batch, 26 workers lost their job, but they were smarter. Rather stopping, they started finding the organization who can help them to fight for them. So they found the organization. And now they call American Center for International Labor Solidarity, which is Solidarity Center. And it's a wing for interna- you know, AFL-CIO, the American Union. So they were helping a group of government workers here to form an independent union. 
and also providing workers a level of training as well as legal support. So my folks ended up going to them and sue the factory owner. And they went back to us and they were talking to me that, hey, we sued the factory owner. And for me, it was like fresh new thing that I heard. I was like, what the hell you're talking about? I mean, how you can even sue the factory owner? The rich people. And they said, there is a labor law and we are protected by that. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's like something new are coming to you. And they insisted that I should come for the training. So after the week or two later, I came. It was four hour long training, which has completely changed my life. There I only learned that my workshop is supposed to be eight hours. I should get a minimum wage and I should not be slapped in the production floor. And something beautiful I learned that I have right to organize and right to bargain. For a teenage, I was already like 14 and a half or near to 15 years then. I was so eager to share this with my coworker. So following morning, when I came to the factory, it was like butterfly in my stomach. I just wanted to share it. So I started whispering with my coworker and everyone was like, yeah, what you were saying? And during the lunch break, I shared them, you know, this is what we learned. And now we have to organize ourselves. We have to join with the union and then we can bargain with our factory owner for our rights. And it was all new for all of us, but we were young and we were ready to fight. So he started filling the union form and joined with union. We got like 99% of union membership in the production floor. But unionism was difficult in my time. It is still difficult in here. So the factory management wasn't happy with it. So they started harassing, torturing us, retaliating us every single way they can, filing complaint in the police station. Finally, when we submit the union application, we just got rejected because of the influence and corruption by the factory owner and government. And I got fired. I worked like another factory, maybe one week or two weeks or a month. And as soon as they would know, they fired me. I got fired, you know, blacklisted throughout the industry. And my life was miserable. I didn't get a job anywhere, but the union where I got the training, they saw a spark on me. So they hired me as a union organizer and a labor educator. And you're still doing it. Since I started learning the law and it never stopped, though there is many ups and downs happen in my life. I got fired, blacklisted. When I became a full-time organizer, I was being arrested. I was in prison for a month. My co-worker faced the imprisonment as well. Uh, many of them are still facing the charges. I lost my co-worker who abducted, brutally tortured, and beaten to death because of the activism. Uh, Throughout these years, we lost the workers in a factory fire and collapses. So rather getting afraid or frustrated and stopped myself, I got anger in me. And, you know, that anger kept me to doing what I'm doing. And I think it is also what I got from my mom. She once said when I started organizing when I was fear and asking her, mom, I'm not sure that I can do it. These are rich people and I'm still teenage and I don't know how I can fight with them. And mom, something beautiful said that, you know, if there is an injustice, someone can always stand up and speak out. If it is someone, then why not you? 
that the encouragement that I got and that encouraged me every single day and urged me that, yes, I mean, injustice in everywhere. Someone needs to speak out, someone needs to stand up. And if he's someone, why not me? So I started, you know, making difference for myself and my co-workers, but I'm just fighting to make difference for workers here in Bangladesh as well as in other production countries. And Rocky, this is exactly what you all are doing with The Circle, right? But you're doing it around the world for women workers in the garment industry and other industries trying to support women like Kalpona and make change. Exactly. I mean, The Circle is a global feminist organization. We're drawing on the collective power of women allies to make change for women around the world and focus on two areas, ending violence against women and girls and also the economic empowerment, which lends itself to this so strongly. And one of the things that the circle has been working with others on for a number of years now is the Living Wage Project, which was initiated back in 2015, when women from our lawyers network and activists such as Calpone were struck by the severity of the issue of poverty wages in fashion's global supply chain. And there's that conviction that laws exist to tackle and solve these sorts of injustices. And, you know, that group of lawyers did some really good research into, at the time, you know, 14 garment producing countries. And the research showed that none were close to giving a living wage. Let's just explain to listeners, a living wage is what economists calculate is what you need to house, clothe and feed your family. Exactly. And they they were finding only 40% of women in garment workers were even getting close to having a decent pay for just a decent standard of living, let alone anywhere close to a living wage. Right. And so how did you all connect with Calpona? So Calpona's uh, been connected with the circle for a number of years. And we are so glad last year she became our newest ambassador, our first from the global south. And Calpona is extraordinary and has been supporting lots of ways, giving insight from the ground and on the front line there. And over the last six years has worked with us and our lawyers on three distinct reports around this notion of a living wage. The first being the legal foundation that actually defines living wage as a fundamental human right. The second, the system's failures that perpetuate the problem of poverty wages and garment workers. And our third, that was last year, was a groundbreaking legislation for brands and at the EU. The aim is being rather than a race to the bottom, let's try and aim for a race to the top and incentivise brands to only purchase from garment producing countries that pay a living wage. Now, that would be extraordinary to get that through. And let's explain to listeners, because they may not understand it, why brands are not paying a living wage. I mean, the short version of it, from what I can see, is that they're just trying to raise their profits, right? And so if they can pay as little as possible to have something made, they will pay that little bit. They nickel and dime everything along the supply chain in order to keep the cost down and the profits up. And one of the ways to keep the cost down is by paying the workers not with their due. Exactly. Fashion talks a lot about sustainability at the moment, plastics, climate change, all so important. But what about the human cost? This is a women's solidarity issue and that the fact that we're buying clothes off the back of women and families who aren't able to send their kids to school because they are, as Calpona said, having to take them out of of education to work at a really young age. Because most garment workers are women. Exactly, 80%. So there's there's 60 to 80 million garment workers around the world estimated, and 80% of those are women. 
Kalpona, tell me a bit more about life in the factory. It's women sewing and it's men overseeing. And the factories, at least in Bangladesh, some are safer now than they used to be because of the reforms of Rana Plaza. But there's still a lot of work to be done. Absolutely, absolutely. The the goal of my work, I always say that me and my organization, we are fighting for a dignified job. And dignity, you know, when we talk about dignity, the first thing comes is the living wage. In Bangladesh today, what is the living wage? What is the calculation for a living? There is no living wage, Dana, in Bangladesh. So uh, for workers, it's a minimum wage, 85 US dollars. $85 a month. Yeah, when we talk about living wage, we need like four times than this because cost of living is too high in here. The workers, those are and getting this minimum wage, they need to spend like 35% of their money for housing. And that's not a dream house. It's a 10 feet by 10 feet concrete room and sometimes doesn't have window and they're sharing the kitchen and toilet with another uh, 100 people like another 20 or 22 family, they need to queue for cooking because there is only four or eight burners for everyone. And food cost, like rice these days, it is almost, I think, 75 to 80 cents, one kilo rice. If there is a four in the family, they need like two kilos of them. So their earning and their expenses is not balanced. And it is all those happening because of the profit grade from the manufacturers to the brands. It is not a rocket science to understand that these workers need living wage. It is not rocket science to calculate that. They just need to do a less profit and that can make sure our workers have a decent wages. And during pandemic, the life was more tough. Thousands of workers lost their job. We don't have social security. We don't have any unemployment insurance for our workers. So workers, when they lost their job, they were literally starving. And other hand, you say that factories are more safer. Yes, I mean, compared to Rana Plaza and now, last eight years, a remarkable improvement has happened. And that was because the Code on Bangladesh Fire and Building Safety has done tremendous job in the ground, included workers' voices and made sure workers have right to say no to unsafe workplace, unsafe jobs. And they do. They do actually say no. They will walk out or they will protest. Yeah, workers in Rana Plaza only died because they saw the crack in the building, but they had a right to say no to that unsafe job. They had to keep going while factory said, or the building owner said that this factory will be, or this building will be there till like 100 years, but that did not least like 100 minutes. This has collapsed. But under the code, factory worker, they can say no to their job if they see any faulty wearing, if they see any crack in the building, or if there are any other safety hazards they face. And that is without a fear, that is without losing job and without losing the pay. I remember when I went to Savar and I met with the survivors of Rana Plaza, they talked about how they saw the crack in the wall and they were very nervous about this and they did not want to go back to work the next day. They thought it was dangerous and they were told if you don't go to work, you will not get paid for your entire month's work because you get paid at the end of the month. It's not like you get a paycheck every week. And they said, right, well, we have to go because if we don't, we'll starve because we need to get paid and we'll get fired. And what will we do? And then the factory collapsed on them and killed workers. And the ones I saw, these survivors, they're still suffering. They're in so much pain and torment mentally, but also physically. And all because they couldn't stand up. So the accord has been good for that. It has improved the conditions of the factories, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And it is great because it is binding. It's not a voluntary initiative. 
And we are looking the opportunity to introduce a code in our neighbor country in South Asia that can be Pakistan or Sri Lanka because the factories are unsafe there as well. So maybe a code will be extending in those countries as well. So we could have a Rana Plaza in Sri Lanka, for example, because the system is broken as it was before Rana Plaza in Bangladesh. Yeah, and more maybe in Pakistan where you heard, you know, every month or every other week, either a factory fire happening or a chemical explosion happening. So when the law is not adequate for the workers to save their lives, then the initiative like a court is really a key to make the improvement. So Now, Rocky, on International Women's Day last month, the Circle launched a new campaign called Hear Her, Empower Her to support women globally. Can you explain this new campaign and its impact? International Women's Day continues to be such a key moment to focus on women's rights, although it should be happening every day, and that's what the Circle strives for. But one of our aims is to continue to bring the voices of those with lived experience to the forefront. And our Hear Her, Empower Her campaign is very much that. We brought together a series of stories from different women who have been survivors of gender-based violence or women from Afghanistan, garment workers from some of the partners we're working with in Sri Lanka and Pakistan and other countries. And it's just been a really powerful tool to explain what's going on right from the voices of those women who are suffering and fighting like Calpona for Dignity and the circle supporting them along the way. And last year, California passed garment workers legislation that would protect them from wage theft. And wage theft is when you're working, say you're getting paid $2 an hour in Los Angeles, which is America's largest garment industry. And then you work overtime, but they don't pay you for the overtime. They're not paying you the state minimum wage, which is nearly $15 an hour now, or even the federal minimum wage, which is about $7.50 or $8 an hour. So that difference between what they pay you and what you're supposed to be paid is called wage theft. And California now says that brands have to be responsible for that difference before the brands would say, not our problem, it's the contractor's problem. They're not paying the workers. It's not our problem. And California said, no, it is your problem, which is tackling what Calpona was talking about, the greed factor of the race to the bottom, to finding the cheapest costs and then washing your hands of it when there's a problem that arises or a catastrophe like Rana Plaza. I wonder if there's any legislation that you all are following or you're working on at the circle that you think will also help garment workers and raise their dignity and protect them from things like wage theft. Voluntary codes have been tried for so long to work to a certain extent. But as you've talked about with California and what we're talking about with this living wage project is legislation's needed now. And there is a ready draft legislation for adoption. So we're going to be continuing to push that. In the last few days as well, there's another example of legally binding agreement with H&M signing the sexual violence and harassment for one of their biggest Indian suppliers after one of their workers was raped and murdered and harassed at work. So that's the first time a brand's ever signed up to that sort of agreement. Huge step. And this legislation in the EU is important not only for the workers outside of the EU in Sri Lanka and Bangladesh like Kalpona, but also within the EU because there are workshops in Leeds and in Prado outside of Florence and here in Paris where people are 
just like in Los Angeles, they're working for far less than the minimum wage, that there's cases of wage theft, that they're being forced to work overtime, which means that you work overtime and you don't get paid for it. So these laws would also hold brands accountable within the EU to pay workers what they're due, which we take for granted. But in fact, it's not really the case. We have these same issues right here in Europe or in the United States. Yeah, absolutely. And you've given great examples. And, you know, last year, the scandal of the Boohoo brand and Leicester. Can you explain that? So in the UK, there was a Boohoo brand, which is one of the fast fashion companies, was exposed as not paying workers fair wages, minimum wages, factory conditions were not up to the standard. There was a huge outcry. But this legislation, if it's implemented, could help women and garment workers globally. The fashion industries, what's the global value is like 2.5 trillion pounds and growing. And growing and growing. Exactly. And we can see not only the monetary power that brings, you know, we saw in the early months of COVID when so many of the brands pulled their contracts and didn't fulfil the wages and garment workers were left destitute. And we want to be tackling those situations. The garment workers are paid at the end of the month and they were sent home with zero. I mean, there are no benefits anyway. Forget about benefits. But they were sent home with nothing. They were just sent home and said, you know, go home. No. And we were hearing those reports out there that said, you know, 77% of workers were experiencing hunger daily, 80% had drastically reduced the amount of food they were consuming. The Circle launched a COVID appeal at that point and were supporting garment workers with emergency food and hygiene parcels, also support for legal rights to fight some of this. And that's why we're so focused on long-term structural change. As Calpona says, it's about dignity, isn't it? Absolutely. Now, Calpona, what about tech? Is tech coming to the garment industry in Bangladesh? When I went to Vietnam for my book, Fashionopolis, I saw laser distressing machines for jeans as opposed to hand sanding and hand wrapping, which of course is terrible for your health and dangerous. This technological revolution in gene distressing was creating safer jobs and better paying jobs. Do we have the same thing happening now in Bangladesh? Is the robot revolution coming and is this going to make the workers' jobs safer and cleaner and maybe even a bit better paid? We are in the beginning of the fourth industrial revolution and is really taking over the worker job. So a few years back, like a sweater factory, 10 workers would be working for one machine, but now it is one worker just needed for one machine. So a worker's large job. But when we compare men and women, men workers getting opportunity for the training, the women workers' space is shrinking. So country doesn't have any plan, I mean, a specific plan that we can see in order to create space for workers for training. As women workers cannot compete, the number of women workers in garment industry are declining. Even a couple of years ago, we would be saying that we have 84% are women working in the industry. Now it is like uh, a little bit up for 60%. So the women are declining because of the technology, because the workplace is not women-friendly. Now that you mention it, I remember when I was in Vietnam, all the people running these high-tech machines were men, and they were getting the training and becoming managers and moving up the ladder and getting better paid, but it was men. There were no women running the high-tech machines. This was a man's job, and the women still sat at sewing machines or swept 
Now, I'm going to have listeners who are scratching their heads saying, how is this all related to sustainability? And as I said in the introduction, I was told by the Pulitzer Center this week that all news stories today are climate stories and all climate stories are labor stories. But I mean, how would you all explain how sustainability and labor are linked? For me, it seems like you really can't solve the climate issue until you solve the poverty issue. And of course, paying people one fourth a living wage is surely a poverty issue. But how else do you see the link between sustainability and labor and why you need to empower these women through the circle? Kalpana can talk more about the effects of climate change in countries like Bangladesh, but they are going to be at the forefront feeling the effects combined with endemic poverty in many countries is a disaster waiting to happen. A climate disaster, yeah. Climate disaster. And it's women and girls that are always at the front line of being affected worst and first by the climate disaster and are already feeling the effects by things like the lack of living wage. So it's going to be a double hit. When you say girls, you mean really girls, because the age to be able to start working in a factory is what in Bangladesh now? So the starting age should be 18 years, as child labor is not allowed in the industry, and it is forbidden in the law as well. Adolescents can work from 14 years, but there is a special clauses for them. Right. I saw kids who were very young, 13, 14, 15 years old. Yeah. Subcontract factory. It is difficult to deny that there is no child worker or adolescent worker. But no one goes to the root cause of child labor. I know the root cause. What is the root cause? Why I had to start working in the factory. Because my mom did not pay the living wage. If my mom would be paying the living wage, she could hire a nanny to take care of her infant. And she can pay for my education and still take care of my family food and medical for my dad. And she didn't pay the living wage. So I had to start as a child. Right. And child today, elsewhere, not in Bangladesh only, in elsewhere, they're working. So if we wanted to end the child labor, pay the living wage to their parents. Absolutely. That's the solution. Exactly. I mean, the parents are earning one fourth the living wage. So in order to make ends meet, all four members of the family have to go to work. It's crazy. Yeah. And, you know, the discussion you and Raki was having, whether sustainability and workers are connected, it is absolutely connected. I'm against fast fashion. But, you know, when we talk about climate change, when we talk about green economy, carbon free economy, do you think about the workers who is making clothes down to the chain? How about them? I mean, if we go for a sustainable clothes, the job will be cut. That is fine. If we ensure a living wage for workers, the workers will be not hurt. Like now, to run a family, four person from the family, they need to work because they earn the poverty wages. But if one of them would be having a living wage, maybe two do not need to work. They can choose education or a better job. So... When we discuss the sustainability, we need to discuss about the living wage too. When we discuss about green economy and climate change, we need to discuss about living wage too. Now, are you going to be protesting again? Because this podcast is coming out the week of the anniversary of Rana Plaza and Earth Day. You know, I find that the fact that both of those land on the same week within a couple of days of each other, very interesting. Will you be out in Savar in front of that empty lot where I met you the last time leading protests? Yes, we will be. I mean, I hope the government will be allow us. Last few years, they're not allowing people to be there. 
pandemic or traffic. So hopefully the government will be allowed. And even if they don't allow, every avenue we know will be protesting, will be asking the brands, those haven't signed the accord yet, to sign the accord and make sure that our factories are safer here in Bangladesh and elsewhere, they're sourcing the clothes. And the government to improve the safety law, we definitely don't want it to see any more Plaza anywhere in our planet. Now tell me, how can listeners help with the worker situation? With you, Kalpona, how can they help you fight the fight to bring dignity to the garment workers? When you see clothes that are made in Bangladesh or made in India, Sri Lanka, Pakistan, El Salvador, or Jordan, or maybe somewhere in Europe, after hearing that all the sweatshop is there, don't freak out. Don't think that you shouldn't buy. Don't be in dilemma whether you should buy or you shouldn't buy. You should buy the clothes. We are in a civilized world. We cannot be without clothes, so we need to buy them. But when you buy them, buy with conscious. Take a responsibility as a consumer. Start speaking to that. When you are in the store, like very clearly, I know that you look for size, color, design, and then price. And please add one, that you need to know more about these workers who are making clothes for you. Start asking questions to the store manager. That will ring the bell in the boss's office that the consumer is asking more questions. Join with Circle. Circle is fighting for women, women voice, fighting for living wages for workers. So join with the consumer campaign. The dignified job we are looking for, there is a five element in the dignified job. One is living wage. Second, union voice at workplace. Third, safe workplace. Fourth, gender-based violence-free workplace. And fifth is our pillar is safe childhood. So all these things only can be ensured if consumers start speaking and make responsible for these brands to do more because the brands... The, pay, the payment they do for the clothing is not enough to make sure a worker's living wage. So brands need to add few cents more. So there are many campaigns going on around. So join with them. Don't feel depressed. Feel anger and use your anger in your activism. Do something. Stand up for us. And Rocky, tell me how listeners can get involved with The Circle. Make sure as consumers, as Calpona says, call for garment workers to receive fair pay, whether it's talking in store, whether it's on social media, follow Calpona and The Circle on all our different social media platforms, and then you can reshare things. Join us in calling the EU to implement the legislation we've talked about at length here today. And then just join the circle and other organisations like Clean Clothes campaigns and join and donate so we can continue our advocacy work and at the same time supporting gun workers on the front line right now as well. So those are three things we'd, we'd say. Excellent. Well, thank you both so much for being on The Green Dream. Here's to raising women's dignity in the garment industry and in every industry and trying to get fair wages and respect and safety in all of our work and lives. Kalpona, go knock them dead in Savar this week when you lead your protests and try to make the world a better place. Thank you so much for being on. Thank you. Thank you for having us. This episode is sponsored by Another Tomorrow, a women's fashion brand that redefines luxury with a commitment to ethics, sustainability, and transparency from farm to fabric to atelier. Find Another Tomorrow on its website, anothertomorrow.co, at its flagship boutique, 
384 Bleecker Street in New York City and at select stores. If you're enjoying this conversation, you'll love my sister podcast on the Wondercast Network, Fashion Conversations with Bronwyn Cosgrave. Fashion Conversations is fashion's equivalent to Inside the Actor's Studio, an in-depth interview podcast with fashion and luxury's leading creators that explores their craft and creative process as well as their personal journeys. Find Fashion Conversations wherever you get your podcasts. American author Rebecca Solnit has written more than 20 books on various topics, including feminism, politics, and art. Her most recent book, Orwell's Roses, looks at how English writer George Orwell's passion for gardening informed his work and his politics. The book, published in 2021 by Viking, was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle's Award for Nonfiction and a finalist for the Penn Jacqueline Bogard Weld Award for Biography. We thought with English rose season upon us, Orwell's Roses was the perfect debut for the Green Dreams Culture Series. Here's our new literary critic, Hermione Hoagie. If we were to imagine some kind of geopolitical weather report for 1936, the map of Europe would look like a mass of mounting storm clouds. This was the year that Hitler shattered the Treaty of Versailles with the invasion of the Rhineland, the year that a terrible new alliance formed between the Third Reich and Mussolini's fascist dictatorship in Italy, and the year that civil war erupted in Spain as Franco seized power as head of a nationalist regime. Meanwhile, in the USSR, Stalin was murdering hundreds of thousands and sending millions to gulags. While these cataclysmic events were shaking the world stage, presaging World War II, somewhere in England, unnoticed, a man was planting roses. This was George Orwell, the great socialist writer whose anti-totalitarian works of the 1940s, particularly his novels Animal Farm and 1984, have helped turn the man into an adjective. When we describe something as Orwellian, we tend to think of the horrors of authoritarianism, of brutal police states and surveillance, of the suppression of heterodoxy, pleasure, and imagination. We do not, however, tend to think of anything as frivolous as tending roses while the world burns. Isn't such a thing a dereliction of civic duty? a shameful indulgence? If Orwell has become a totemic, heroic figure in the Western political imagination, it's because the moral stridency and fierce clarity of his works represent the opposite of cowardly retreat from the world, one famously mocked at the end of Voltaire's Candide with the phrase, tend your garden. For the activist and historian Rebecca Solnit, This modest and remarkable act, George Orwell planting roses in 1936, a man quite literally tending his garden, is the sprig from which a succession of essays bloom. Solnit's expansive, hopeful new book, Orwell's Roses, invites us to reconsider Orwell and the place of pleasure in his politics. Here was a man who, contrary to crude conceptions of him as some kind of dour prophet of political doom, believed in beauty and joy as human necessities. The flowers of the book's title, then, are both literal, 
Solnit makes a pilgrimage to the writer's cottage garden in England where his bushes endure, as well as the figurative kind present in the slogan Bread and Roses. That phrase, sprung from the women's suffrage movement, continues to express a utopian yet achievable wish, namely for a robust leftist politics that delivers the basic material conditions a society needs, i.e. the bread part, but through this foundation allows us to meet our other, less quantifiable needs, those things which allow a person to thrive rather than merely survive. Bread fed the body, Solnit explains. Roses fed something subtler, not just hearts, but imaginations, psyches, senses, identities. And this, as Solnit suggests, can become a mutually reinforcing dynamic. Pleasure, she insists, does not necessarily seduce us from the task at hand, but can fortify us. In other words, it's the roses that equip us to fight harder for the bread. Solnit's wandering and exploratory route through history, across the globe and between ideas, is more rambling rose than rigid hothouse bloom, and this style is a reflection of her politics. Like the great Hannah Arendt before her, and like Orwell himself, Solnit is leery of rigid ideologies. She admits that thinking about Orwell's roses and where they led was a meandering process, and perhaps a rhizomatic one. Rhizomes, those underground plant stems capable of sending out roots and runners in many directions, represent the non-hierarchical, the decentralized and the associative. They reach and ramble and grow, resisting the rigid and containable. In this way, you could even say that they themselves are Orwellian, because by this point of the book, Solnit has succeeded in imbuing the adjective with positive meaning. To be Orwellian does not only mean to be against totalitarianism, it means to be for individualism, creativity, pleasure, joy, and freedom of expression in all its forms. In the spring of 1946, a decade after planting these now celebrated rose bushes, Orwell published an essay about toads. Is it wicked to take pleasure in spring? He asks, in a spirit of exuberant provocation. Is it politically reprehensible, while we are all groaning under the shackles of the capitalist system, to point out that life is frequently more worth living because of a blackbird's song, a yellow elm tree in October, or some other natural phenomenon which does not cost money and does not have what the editors of left-wing newspapers call a class angle? Here, thanks to Solnit, is an answer to that question that is both instructive and optimistic. New episodes of The Green Dream come out the first and third Tuesday of the month. And we'll be back in two weeks with a conversation with Bloomberg's automobile writer, Hannah Elliott. We'll be talking about the switch to electric vehicles, why they are all so ugly, which ones she loves anyway and why, and what the shift from gas to electric-powered engines will do to the classic car market. Will there ever be electric muscle cars? Gearheads like me want to know. We hope you'll join us. This episode of The Green Dream was sponsored by the sustainable fashion brand Another Tomorrow. 
written by Dana Thomas, with a book review by Hermione Hobie, HermioneHobie.com. From TalkBox Productions, with executive producer Tavia Gilbert, with mix and master by Kayla Elrod. Music performed by Eric Grace of Breadbeat Records in Nashville, Tennessee. The Green Dream is a production of Wondercast Studio in association with Mortimer House. You can find us online at wondercast.studio or on wondercast.radio. I'm Dana Thomas, the European Sustainability Editor for British Vogue. You can read my monthly column, also called The Green Dream, in the magazine or online at vogue.co.uk. You can follow me on Instagram and on Twitter, where my handle for both is at Dana Thomas Paris. Thank you for listening.